Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to Power Athlete Radio. First time guest Mike Sorrell joins us to dish on many subjects, not least of which are military leadership, the mystique around the SEALs, and the current state of war in Ukraine. Mike is uniquely qualified to weigh in on all of this and so much more, but true to his character, he is careful not to denigrate others in his analysis. An exceptional human with an exceptional resume. Here it is, episode 594. Mike, dude, thanks for tuning in, and more importantly, thanks for coming in and fucking hanging out. It's on a nice cold day here in Texas, which is always so rare. Uh, ice everywhere, so you had to brave the elements, which I'm sure were you know overwhelming at times, but we're able to make it in. That, that's so strange. I mean, braving the, the the elements, the people in the Midwest are like, <laughs> what? It's 25. That's a regular day. Oh yeah, school's canceled. Yeah. shut it down. Yeah, te- Texans lose their mind. Well, they have no snow removal. And they have no ability to ice the roads. Exactly. So when I lived in the you know East Coast, they would like post this stuff up, and they would start running the snow removal and start you know, and then people just get out and brave it because it was part of the, the deal here in Texas. People lose their minds. They do. But hey, the one good thing about Texas is you don't have to uh, shovel heat. So <laughs> I think that's why we live there. Uh, how do you deal with the heat? Are you good with it? You know, I, I'm a lot better with the heat than I am with the uh, the cold. I mean, the one thing about the cold, and uh, just got back from uh, a trip to uh, to Everest, is you could always layer up. But there's there's a certain point, you know, beyond you know zero Celsius where it just it. Hurts. Just going to casually throw this out. Yeah, there. I just went on this trip to Everest. Whatever. Uh, Everest Base Camp or uh, Summit of Everest. So we this one was unique. We uh, skydived. So flaccid. Skydived uh, into the Everest region. So it was a group of uh, guys from uh, the Complete Parachute Solutions team, which is uh, they basically create the parachutes for a lot of the special operations community. It's run by a former SEAL named uh, Fred Williams, SEAL in the uh, 80s, 90s. And he put together this uh, expedition team. We trained in Colorado. Uh, of course, the highest uh, sort of drop zone we could get in Colorado is Leadville, right around 10,000 feet uh, is the, uh, the landing zone. And uh, after that, we went to Everest, in October for about a little more than 14 days. Uh, flew into Lukla, climbed to Namchi, did, did a few nights in Namchi, and then started jumping into uh, increasingly higher drop zones as we got deeper into Everest. The last one was uh, Gork Shep at 17.5, and the parachute is just, it is just, I mean, it's coming in fast because of the... Uh, Are you guys base jumping or, uh, or out of helicopters? Helicopters on, on oxygen. So helicopters, because the, you know, the high altitude release point has to be very specific. Uh, it'd be very hard on a plane, you know, traveling about 130, uh, mile, 130 miles an hour. Uh, so we were doing about 30 miles an hour uh, on the, uh, the helicopters right over the, uh, the drop zone and released. Um, you're under canopy pretty quickly. So free fall for about four, four seconds, then under canopy the rest of the time into the uh, drop zone. Do you, uh, I don't know if you ever saw this, but um, years ago, Bear Grylls, who I always thought was just kind of a, I don't know, it just looked like Hollywood bullshit to me. But he had a deal where he like flew in like a, like a little, like, like a, one of those little, I don't know what they are, but they have like a propeller on the back and they like went over Mount Everest. And like, I don't know if you ever saw that. No kidding. No. Yeah. So it was on YouTube, but it was basically these guys were in, I don't know what they're like. It's like a little flight, uh, like single man kind of open thing and has a propeller on the back mm-hmm. and he's going over this. And all of a sudden I'm like watching, I'm like, holy shit, dude, this guy, this is insane. 
And he's like, whoa. And he goes over the top of Everest. And when, you never saw this on YouTube? No, I didn't. Uh, I have to go look it up. I was like, because I always thought, you know, like, ah, this thing's kind of a bullshit. <sighs> like, they randomly find, like. But could it be just mood landing stuff? It could be. just fake the peak? And that was in Colorado? Uh, it could be. Uh, but uh, at that point, I was like, ah, this Bear Girls guy's probably pretty legit because that takes some huge balls to fly over Mount Everest on a little glider. Because he did get caught, right? There was allegations that his his trips were not as. Yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah. You uh, go to a hotel and cut. All right. Let's pack it up, guys. Yeah. And, and like they would like. Meet uh, back here at O. Yeah. They, they would throw an animal out there and be like, oh, look at this wild game. He's going to go over there and eat. It was not obviously I hadn't yeah. been there for a few days. So, I mean, but that's. I mean, you know, as being a SEAL, I mean, you've probably seen enough movies and, you mean, uh, all the different Hollywood takes on everything. I mean, you know, usually know it's a SEAL in a movie where they got like a popped up collar and a pink, you know, polo shirt and, you know, cool hair. And I, You know, I can't blame uh, Bear Grylls on that because usually when training was over, we'd be like, okay, you guys good? We're all heading to the Marriott, <laughs> which we were all Marriott Rewards members uh, collecting our points. So, yeah, well, very, very few nights in the uh, in the field as a, as a SEAL, you know. Compared to when I was a recon Marine, it was one. Marines don't have any money, so we always spent the night in the field. So uh, give us a little background. Um, you know, like where'd you grow up? How'd you start? More importantly, how did you get to where you are today? Yeah, absolutely. So born in the uh, the Bay Area, uh, which we, we talked about. You yeah. know, and, um, you know, good folks, uh, middle class family, uh, you know. Did, did you actually, you were born in San Francisco and then like when did you move south? Palo Alto uh, when I was very young. Okay. Uh, don't don't remember, but our our, our entire family's been in uh, San Francisco since 1899. Oh wow. Uh, came across uh, Treasure Island, a bunch of uh, uh, Italians. Uh, still a significant amount of family there. But uh, when I graduated high school, you know, uh, Jesuit high school, good good high school. Uh, I was not a good student. I was not from a lack of aptitude whatsoever. It was just I was not focused. And so my, my parents who came from nothing really wanted all their kids to go to, to college. And I was the, uh, the youngest. So they said, Hey, you know, we understand you want to go to the military. You're going to college. You're, you're going to become an officer. Um, and went to call university of Colorado mm-hmm. lasted about a, a semester and a half, uh, withdrew from all my classes and then, uh, enlisted in the Marine Corps. Cause I'd met a force recon Marine. And at the time I was probably what, 130, 135 pounds. And you got this guy who's just, you know, 180 pounds, just all muscle, um, humbly confident, respectful to everyone. And, and that's the powers, you know, as, as adults, as role models that, that people have. And, and because of that guy, I'm like, what do you do? He's like, I'm, I'm a force to become Marine. I'm like, I want to do that. And he helped me enlist in the Marine Corps. Off I went and uh, I did become a recon Marine. I was a scout sniper. And uh, this was before 9-11. And uh, I'd done very well in the Marine Corps. Uh, honor man out of multiple courses from boot camp to the School of Infantry. Uh, you know, set records at uh, Marine OCS, uh, but eventually they sent me back to college to become an officer. And still before uh, 9-11, when I was at Texas A&M, which was a culture shock coming from San Diego to College Station. I don't know if you guys oh, yeah. have been there. Yeah. Oh, God. Yeah. The cult. Yeah, here's the funny thing is I actually feel bad now looking at it. I, I, I called my mom whining. I'm like, hey, I think I made a huge mistake. And she said, uh, you know, not having come for much. She's like, if you're calling to cry to me, about getting a free college education and that you don't like the, the, the town, call somebody else. She was like, if you don't like it, finish college and get out of there as quickly as possible. And that's what I did. Finished in three years, but the war had kicked off and um, the Marines were still not part of the United States Special Operations Command, sure. SOCOM. And uh, you know, I'd worked with SEALs, highly impressive dudes. Uh, they had a lot of money. 
because they were part of SOCOM. They were involved uh, more heavily uh, at the tip of the spear, if you want to call it, uh, from 9-11 on. And I said, okay, that's what I'm going to go do. And made it through BUDS. Uh, really just wanted to make it through BUDS as quickly as possible to get to the war as quickly as possible. And having been a Marine, never, never really bought into the whole like SEAL culture where somebody comes out of high school or comes out of college and becomes a SEAL. I'd gotten a lot of exposure to the different services. I'd love the Marine Corps, love the Army, love the Air Force, love all the special operations from all the different services. I will never talk ill of Green Berets or MARSOC or, or anyone else. I've always had good uh, interactions, but uh, made it to SEAL Team 3. Did three deployments from 2005 to 2008. Uh, hit two battles, the Battle of Ramani in 2006, the Battle of Sadr in 2008. And then, uh, you know, once you get into the SEAL teams, you find out there's another group that is uh, that only one out of 35 to one out of 40 SEALs makes it to. And that was the next challenge for me. I mean, that's that's the question. Do I have what it takes to make it to that level? And you're not going to know unless you you, you, you you know put your foot into the ring and, and give it a shot and it worked out and uh, spent the majority of my SEAL career there with guys who outperformed me on a daily basis. So the bar was high and I had to put out every day. And uh, I think a testament to that is I only lasted six years there. And it was towards the, uh, the end of my career and um, ended up with uh, 11 deployments. And um, I was just, I was, there was no gas left in the tank by the time I was done. So they sent me, God bless the, uh, the leaders in the SEAL community, they sent me to the University of Texas where I got my MBA while finishing out my career wow. and then retired here. And oh, badass. That's, that's pretty much the military. And then I've started a number of businesses. Uh, unfortunately, to the SEAL uh, sort of uh, stigma, I did write a book. It wasn't about me. It wasn't how I won the war. Uh, there I was surrounded by, you know, covered in grenade pins. Uh, no, it was about uh, mainly the Green Berets because they were so much further ahead of the SEALs in terms of how they assess and select people into their community, much like the, the scouts at the combines uh, assessing people beyond just what they did on the, uh, the field. Because I was a guest instructor at the Special Forces Qualification Course in 2008, and it was a shock to me. And so that book, it was mainly for business leaders uh, called The Talent War, How Special Operations and Great Organizations Went on Talent. It was solely on how you select uh, talent into your organization and touched on how you retain it and develop it. Uh, and then from there, we, we started a consulting firm based off that. And then uh, I ended up in a weird deal and I'll, I'll shut up here where uh, men's journal is building a whole sort of architecture around me called the everyday warrior, which is a philosophy I've, uh, I've had, whether you're the most elite warrior or elite uh, athlete, uh, or even an everyday man on the street, we're all battling something. We're all trying to, to, to continually learn to, to live a life of, you know, fulfillment, purpose, and especially impact. And uh, I think for a lot of ad average Joes, which I consider myself now, uh, I'm no longer in, in the community community I served. Uh, I'm just trying to find ways to get better. And if we can give some good strategies and tactics to to, to those average Joes, then uh, then it's a win-win. Man, sounds amazing. Yeah. So, so what's the what's the layout? I mean, obviously you're in the initial stages of the architecture, but it sounds like you got some pretty fun adventures planned up. Yeah. So, you know, one we just kicked off, and it launches around March 15th. Uh, Men's Journal, the Everyday Warrior podcast, which is their first official podcast. Um, and I could go into how I think Men's Journal has really poor taste if they selected me to, <laughs> to build this out architecture around. Um, 
but uh, we're, we're also working on a book called The Everyday Warrior that will release around uh, 1 August. Uh, all the books I write, I write with my brothers because um, I, I, I find so much more enjoyment in learning uh, when I write it with my brothers because I'm getting their viewpoints and I've changed some of my philosophies on leadership listening to their perspectives. And, and this is no different. Um, but additionally, under that everyday warrior architecture, you know, we're putting a, a contributor team together of mental health uh, uh, specialists. Um, and when I say mental health specialists, not your woke uh, mental health spe- uh, specialists, they actually call it mental fitness, mm-hmm. spiritual fitness, much like physical fitness. Um, and, uh, it's a good crew, a lot of soft guys, a lot of subject, subject matter experts within their, uh, their respective realms. And again, just to give great life and leadership, uh, strategies and tactics to, to the readers. And that also kicks off on March 15th. Um, but you know, men's journal has been supportive of the Everest expedition. Uh, Andy Stuff and I are going to Iceland for something called the ice hop. And I know you're very close with Andy. Uh, oh yeah. I mean, he was probably... I mean, he's obviously been an alum on the podcast numerous times, but he might have been, was he one of our very first podcasts? Well, symposiums. Yeah, very first I mean, symposium. Yeah, yeah, he came to all symposiums. Speak to those I mean, 15 people. Dude, I, I remember when Andy was just a BUDS instructor going to his house, and uh, he was down, you know, uh, base housing in Coronado, sitting in his backyard, uh, you know, drinking beers and, you know, burning a fire. I mean, dude, I've, yeah, I mean, well, probably, what, 2008? So, yeah, he's been, you know, a fixture. I mean, actually, when we wrote, uh, when I was approached about the CrossFit football, uh, we had like three templates that people would follow. There was an intermediate template. It was actually the training template that I wrote for Andy. So he was actually the intermediate athlete. And to, then To expand on that, how we envision athleticism and developing over time is the life cycle of an athlete. Yeah. So you begin as a novice, think mm-hmm. about your old self or the 135-pound self, uh, either the high school football player or college kid just getting into weights. And then once you're trained, you established base level of strength and training age, then we get to have some fun with an intermediate. And this yep. is the template John's speaking of. And then there's a level up to professional. Think about the individual aiming to level up to that to that green team. They have to have specific training for the task ahead. So or, what you're or, telling me is Andy never left the intermediate. Well, level. It, it, he it, just it was, didn't have what it took. To, it to was actually uh, Andy owned CrossFit Coronado, yes. and uh, Ben Oliver was his uh, like uh, assistant. And Ben ended up moving up to Balboa, which was my gym, and I ended up selling Ben uh, CrossFit Balboa. He still owns it, but we would go and train, and uh, Ben had to follow the amateur, and he followed the intermediate, and I followed the professional that I'd written. And the idea was that uh, you could all train together if you understood and everything kind of. So the actual like field testing for CrossFit football happened in Coronado with those three individuals. And we tested a whole bunch of shit that we realized like sucked and a bunch of stuff that was really good. And at the time, Andy's ankle, you know, he got shot in the hip and, uh, you know, with that AK round and, you know, somewhere in some fucking shithole. And uh, he was having issues with drop foot. And, you know, they brought him back as a buds instructor and he wanted to come back and, you know, improve his fitness. And we started training together and uh, he trained like, and I, I was going back to play for my 10th year in the NFL mm-hmm. and Andy was my training partner. I, I remember when this started to filter into the, to the SEAL teams. What, what year was that? I was uh, 2008 in 2009. Yeah. I, I remember those workouts coming in. They just sort of ended up on our common drives. Well, the, uh, uh, well, yeah, so Andy was kind of instrumental in that piece, but more importantly, uh, it was just a Templeized Strength Conditioning Program, just converted into like CrossFit speak. So I always joke that like I was able to speak uh, uh, Martian 
um, and was able to kind of translate smart strength conditioning programs into short met- metabolic conditioning and use a lot of those terms because I kind of just understood it on a different level. And uh, we convinced everybody that you needed to actually do two workouts a day. You need to lift some weights. You need to do some conditioning opposed from just CrossFit. So uh, I remember I was at a uh, big dinner with Greg Glassman. Now we show up and actually my brothers were with me. He had like seven fucking drinks before we even like, like even they brought our appetizers. And so he's shit faced, leans across the table and screams at me. You virally infected CrossFit. You destroyed it. You convinced everybody they needed to be strong and, uh, and powerful and being strong and powerful is way more cool than being fit. And I was like, oh, thank you. I'm so flattered that you would have said this. You're waiting for the, the criticism. Yeah, the yeah I was yeah. waiting. And then uh, I think, no, it, it was a different time. He went face down in the suit. But then at that point, they fucking carried him out. He just, he like, I'm like, yo, man, like, don't show up to a business meeting and have seven margaritas. That's not going to do anybody any good. When you start to believe your own bullshit, and we see this so often. You know, I think Warren Buffett said it best. You know, he said, if you're a jerk before you have money. It just amplifies it. It just amplifies it. It just amplifies it. This happens, I mean, in the SEALs, it happens the same in the NFL, right? Um, You know, you do this job, and then all of a sudden there's all these people around you that are telling you how great you are. And you either have to stay grounded or, you know, be real accurate or kind of maybe, you know, live in almost a little recluded or uh, secluded or pull yourself out of it a little bit because if you get stuck within it, all of a sudden you have all these yes men and all these people telling you how fucking great you are. And it's really hard to not start to believe them after a while. It, so, you know, uh, I think in Texas, you know, all hat, no cattle is, is I don't know what happens. All, all, all the only perspective I have is, is the SEAL teams. When guys get out, somehow the stories get larger. You know, I, Whenever I speak and I speak to companies for a living on leadership, you know, I always start with if I've seen further, it's because I've stood on the shoulders of giants, men and women that were better than me, yeah. period. And if I speak to you today, understand it, it's from a point of humble confidence. Humble in the fact that I'm never the smartest man uh, or, or, or woman in the room. I'm not, I'm not the strongest. I'm not and the if fastest. you are, you got to go find a new room. Yeah. And, you know, confident that. I was always surrounded by a great team that no matter the obstacle, we could, we could find a way to overcome. But I've seen, and let, let me preface it, I would never denigrate any one service. I ended up with 11 deployments and I left the SEAL teams with more questions than I had answers. And I see certain guys with maybe two combat deployments talking as if they understand war and they understand everything as if their way is 100% correct. And it, it takes me back. They're entitled to, to have that perception. They're entitled to, to, to their viewpoints. But I, I, I'm always cautious. And one, I've got a good woman in my, my, my life that, that keeps me grounded, that if I ever start talking like that, she will smack me down. Man, um, and uh, I only know this from personal experience, but uh, you know, as I came in the NFL, as just a young NFL player, um, I came in and started as a rookie and ended up rupturing my patellar tendon in my first NFL start. So the end of the first half, I step in the seam, rupture my patellar tendon, get carted off the field. And if you listen to the podcast, I've fucking probably drawn on the story before. Uh, as they're kind of going through and I'm in the training room and the doctor comes and he examines me and he looks and he's like, you rupture your patellar tendon, mid patellar rupture. We've never had anybody come back from this injury. Your career's finished. And like my parents were in there. I look over and my mom's like the look on my parents' face. And I just see like a single tear stream down my dad's face. I'd never seen my dad cry. And it was the only time I ever had and was like, oh, fuck, this is serious. So I was in surgery that night. 
and I made this, you know, like uh, I wake up from surgery. My mom's there, you know, and it's kind of fucking dark. And uh, it's like three in the morning. I'm in Philadelphia. I'm a California kid. And like here I come in, uh, have all this, you know, momentum come in and start. And now here I am in a hospital bed the next day with the doctor telling you this is the end of your career. So in your head, you're thinking, all right, if this is over, because obviously doctors know what the fuck they're talking about. Um, what's my game plan? And I made a deal with myself. One, I'm going to rehab. So one, I don't have a limp so that nobody asks me what's wrong. And two, I'm just going to make a little bit of cash so I can go back and go to law school, which was my my plan. And uh, I get out and I start training. And all of a sudden you get to this point where you're like, you know what? Uh, there's a single person in this facility that believes in me so much so that they went out and they, they brought in a uh, high price free agent for about 10 million bucks a year to play my position. So I saw the writing on the wall. And I think there was like a feeling of like, uh, I got nothing to lose. And I ended up coming back rehabbing and then uh, starting 16 games the next year and came on. And, and now all of a sudden, all these people that fucking didn't know your name, everybody remembers your name. And so I saw this like huge fucking tank. And then all of a sudden, this huge rise. And within a couple of years, all of a sudden, I'm one of the top rated guys in my position. Uh, and it, like you just, man, uh, I think I did this and then I got humbled again. And I realized all too often that when you get too high on your horse and you start believing what everybody's telling you, that's the minute that you get cut off of your knees. And it fucking happened to me twice. And so much so that, like, I think back on that constantly. And, uh, you know, the age old one that um, those who forget history are doomed to repeat it, yes. which uh, scares me so much in this present climate in this society where now we're trying to erase, you know, pull down statues and this historical revision where we want to chart changing things and everything from the 1619 project and, you know, this. I mean, everything is like, why are we going back and rewriting this stuff? I mean, history, whether it be good or bad, uh, is not meant to be analyzed with the lens of the future. It is what it is, and it's there as a fucking roadmap to what not to. And uh, I always think, man, like all too often, dude, you see this where you know people have great success, they get cut off at the knees, and then they forget it. And I think you just have to be extremely, like, uh, not pessimistic a little bit, but you're like, no, I've had my hand burned before. I'm not going to touch that fucking hot pan. Have you heard of the, because uh, what you just described sounds a lot like the Dunning-Kruger oh, effect. Yeah. Mm -hmm. We saw this with, with, in the context of the SEAL teams. Well, I was going to say Trump is probably the greatest Dunning-Kruger effect I've ever seen to the point where if you look up Dunning-Kruger effect, you're going to see a picture of Trump. I'm the greatest person that's <laughs> ever done anything. I mean, it's, uh, yeah. I mean, but uh, like, uh, but the problem I think with um, when you, and, and th this is the same thing happens in the NFL, um, and I'm sure it happens in the SEAL teams. Uh, when guys are in the fight doing the job, you have this daily reminder exactly how good or bad you are. You get judged every single day. All of a sudden, when people retire and they step away from it, then all of a sudden, this like this machine starts to grow. And I I hear guys on TV, and you know, I mean, I played against Strahan for years, and uh, Strahan's an incredible player. Don't let me wrong, but like people start creating this uh, like like bigger than than life image of these individuals. I'm sure it happens with the seals too. A, a mythos, almost. It's just this this mythology around that individual that just doesn't that doesn't hold to be true. And, and we have that within the uh, the, the seal teams, man. Um, Is it bad? It's it's pretty bad. I'll, I'll, let me put it this way. First off, you know Hollywood portrays because they, they got to sell movies. They, yeah. they portray guys like that that are larger than life characters that usually were not the best seals, and. and the most lethal elite warriors I've known, and I do not put myself in that category. I serve next to them, but I do not put myself in that category. Um, we're usually the most empathetic, kind, respectful, quiet individuals I've ever met. 
And they wouldn't tell you how many people they've killed, how many deployments they have, or how many uh, medals they have on their chest. And you would never know it. But somebody else would tell somebody in the room, like, hey, this guy's done that and that. And they'd be like, no way. And the guy would never talk about it. And those warriors usually get out of the SEAL teams. They go to a farm in Mississippi or, or somewhere else, and you'll never hear from them again. Sure. And, uh, I, you know, I sort of cringe when I look in the mirror because, you know, I'm out doing this. Um, yeah, but you're not sitting around. I, I mean, I, I don't know, like on your speaking engagements, uh, I'm sure there's some individuals as they bring in where the whole deal is uh, come in and tell us war stories. Me, me, me. Well, I yeah. mean, uh, I'm, I'm sure there's, uh, um, you know, uh, C-suites of high-end companies that write big checks to have guys like you come in and sit around and, you know, have a couple bourbons and tell war stories. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'll, I'll put it to you this way. If you've ever sat down with like World War II vets or Vietnam or Korea vets, yeah. uh, I'm on receive mode only. And the, like, you know, the old timers, they, they tell their stories and they're, they're usually legitimate stories. Yeah. And they'll look at me and be like, do you have any war stories? And I'm like, nope, nothing that would ever touch the experience that you guys went through. And so for that purpose, I'm just not even going to. But my grandfather, I remember the first time I came back from Iraq because he was the 501st. Uh, no, I'm sorry, 503rd. And he was a quartermaster, which he was an infantryman, but he was airborne and he jumped in. So third day, day of uh, Normandy. And then he was the Black Forest during the Battle of the Bulge. And those guys lived in, let me say it, just shit conditions. Well, and what's wild is uh, when they went to war, they didn't come home until the war was won. There was no deployments. Like you went to war, like how long are you going to be there? I don't know how long ever it takes. Wait, you know, I remember talking to Andy about this, that that was our biggest flaw. That was our biggest flaw. So they should have left us over there and said, hey, if you want to come home, fin- finish, finish the war. Yeah. Um, so, you know, he told me, one, he never talked about the war, even to his own kids. It was one I became a Marine that he, he opened up and he told me those same stories seven times in a row. And guess what? I listened. Mm-hmm. But when I got back from the first, uh, you know, Iraq for, for my first deployment in 2005, he's like, so how was it? Were you guys sleeping outside? Do you have enough food? And I didn't have... Uh, I just couldn't bring myself to tell him the conditions we were living in Saddam's old palaces with chow halls that had, you could go get Mexican food over here. You could go get American uh, over here, Chinese food over here. And there was a little guy with a hat uh, that would give you an ice cream cone as you left the, uh, the chow hall. The gyms were the equivalent of a, of a gold gym, completely stocked out with all the equipment you need. I mean, we lived well over there. Now the infantry, because you know, special operations, those guys, that's a different story. And sometimes they lived in horrible conditions, but I couldn't bring it to, to tell my grandfather that we were we were living large. Is it a changing of the times? I mean, it feels like, um, you know, with, uh, you know, and I, and, and I hate to beat down on social media because it's connected so many people, but it's kind of almost forced people into positions where, you know, if you wanted to say something, you probably had to write a book or be a contributor or do something. But now it feels like every person has their ability to, to push out their message and everybody's kind of fighting for this. And it just feels like, uh, you know, people can cultivate an image where, I mean, think about social media. I mean, I've met people through social media and been like, man, this is completely different than what you fucking portray. Well, everyone has a microphone or at least they have access to a microphone now. But when it comes look down at to, these three assholes, yeah, yeah, yeah. what it comes down to in, in, in you know, what I think you're getting to is how do you determine who's credible and who's not or authenticity or authenticity? Yeah. Yes. And. You know, happy, proud to have served as a, as a SEAL, sort of done with that part of my life in that community. Um, there are guys out there that, I'll be honest, the, the warriors I know, they see it and they'll, they'll text me. They, they cringe at the notion that this guy is out in the uh, the, the, the limelight. 
Um, at the end of the day, I'm happy if, if that's what's working for them and they're yeah, but, successful. But but for you guys, I mean, because the SEAL community <clears throat> is so tight and so small that everything's just one phone call. If you don't know that dude, you know somebody who knows oh, that yeah. guy. And so it feels like the type of thing where, I mean, and just like anything, like playing football or in anything, there's good SEALs and there's bad SEALs. Just like uh, I watch NFL Sunday and I see guys up there commentating and I'm like, I used to fucking take that guy's lunch money every day. And he's up there talking about, you know, when he played in this. I'm like, you sucked. So... You know, you, you say something very interesting. There, there's good seals and there's bad seals. But to the public, I don't think that exists. It seems like they paint all seals or special operations. Let's not make this so seal centric. They paint them all in these, I say, rainbow colors. Like they're all just amazing. They're all heroes. And that's not the case. You know that yeah. having served at that level. Uh, what is it? Power's law that an overwhelming majority of your results are driven by a very small minority of your team, your organization, or your company. It Just holds true. The 80, 20? It's much like the Pareto principle. Um, oh, okay. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. 20, or 80% of your results are led by 20% of your, sure. your workforce. And I think what the current, uh, you know, Warcom commander, who's an amazing leader, is trying to do right now is when you see a war, there's always a push from you know, senior leaders in the government of we need more special operations or we need more snipers. This Every war, this has happened. And we try to maintain the standards as much as possible, but it becomes a numbers game. And what the current commander, I believe, is doing right now is he's trying to make the teams small again so that they can control the quality uh, of each of the operators to a higher degree. But, um, you know, looking back in the SEAL teams, we preach a big game, but did we always hold the standard? And the answer is no. There were a lot of guys that I was shocked that were allowed to continue their careers in the SEAL team. I'm not, I'm not trying to go down a negative route, but there was a high degree of unconscious incompetence, mm-hmm. much like you're describing, where mm-hmm. guys would just you know sing themselves praises, but everyone around him is like, "What the hell is that guy talking about? His EOTech is 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 on backwards on his <laughs> rifle. I'm not kidding you. I've, I've seen that where team guy had his EOTech." backwards on his rifle. I, I mean, that's just basic, basic stuff. Did anyone say anything? No. He'll be fine. Yeah. If you shoot his gun, we're in a bad problem. Yeah, load his bullets in backwards too, right? So it, 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 it's, it's interesting. Um, again, it's that lore that I think every, every team, every community tries to, tries to, to, to create. Um, but what you preach really matches up with, uh, with reality. Uh, so I remember, um, my rookie year, uh, I went to, um, what was it? Uh, Stone's movie, football movie, uh, any given Sunday. Right. So, uh, my girlfriend at the time was in town and my mom and dad were in town and they were like, wow, we should go see this. I'm like, sweet. So we go. And as we're watching the movie, I'm like, there's a team like this. And they're all looking at me being like, is this how the NFL is? They're cutting cars in half. There's cheerleader strippers at practice, like this whole thing going down. And I'm like, I don't know what team this is, but this is fucking amazing. It's Miami, John. Uh, no, it was uh, it, like allegedly it was based know, off of like the Cowboys and the White House and all the crazy shit that they did. And, um, you know, there was always older dudes that had played on those teams that like, you know, would always be like, you know, come around. Let me, let me tell these stories to the young guys. And I was thinking like, man, maybe that's just part of the myth. But uh, I'm sure the same thing happens with all these different movies that come out. And where you're like, ah, that isn't exactly how that went down. But I mean, at the end of the day, people are looking to be entertained. 
and there's this uh, a, like um, this mythology. I mean, there's this like uh, aura around the seals where you know you guys have like uh, I mean, like so my my dad's cousin, Little Bill Bruner, was a, um, a UDT guy in Vietnam. And uh, the whole kind of seal thing with like the UDTs where it kind of merged, that was kind of like in his era. And uh, he would tell us stories because he was a surfer kid from Southern California. Yeah. And uh, he would, you know, like he used to, they would, part of their deal was they had to swim out and plant mines on like boats and all this crazy shit. And he used to wear board shorts and had a surfboard that he would paddle out on. And so they were in Vietnam and like it was kind of a joke because he would always wear like Hawaiian shorts underneath his like whatever, you know, vest and the whole deal. And uh, the only thing I knew, I mean, he was would tell us some stories, but he was such a terrible alcoholic um, that he's like, all we did was drink. And his whole thing was like, you know, the only real legacy of these guys is alcoholism. And he it got to the point where he drank so much that he had to mix milk with the vodka because it was killing his stomach. stomach. Yeah. And then he started kind of gaining weight. And every time we'd see him, and he's like, well, I switched to nonfat. I was drinking too much. And uh, he was just, it was just a weird thing. I mean, we were always stoked to go see him because the stories were epic. Uh, but I watched that man like grow and he wasn't a big dude and he's gotten, I mean, he ended up dying, but I remember him telling me the only legacy from this thing from Vietnam was drinking. And he's like, some guys did drugs. And most of us just drank ourselves fucking unconscious every day. And so like, that was, uh, as an adult, I wish, uh, you know, he passed away years ago. I would have loved to have heard more of the stories, but I, you know, I was a little kid when he was telling us, but he was like, yeah, I used to paddle out on a, on a surfboard and board shorts and go out and we would basically plant, uh, mines on, uh, enemy, on enemy boats and the whole deal. And they blow shit up. And uh, he's like, I was good with explosives and then came back and stood up, um, the bomb, uh, disposal and the bomb ordinance deal for, uh, LA County, um, police officer, uh, uh, police department. Amazing. Yeah. That, that was a hard breed. I mean, it, one, we, we've got a mutual friend, Dr. Kirk Parsley. Yep. Um, you know, Kirk didn't see any combat. He was a SEAL in the 80s or in, in 90s. You know, he, but, uh, uh, what's wild about Kirk is uh, he's always told me I was a peacetime SEAL. And I'm always like, Doc, like, but you did, like, first of all, what does that matter? But you did something so fucking cool in terms of helping the SEALs, like when the guys from, uh, uh, Damnick came to visit us. I mean, we had him here working with those guys, and one of the things they were so excited was to meet Parsley. It, it, so, had Kirk in that generation gone to war, they would have been awesome, maybe better than us. <laughs> and, and my only hope is that the next generation, we did our job so well training the guys coming behind us, that the next generation of special operations guys is that much better for whatever challenge they face. But y- you know, I call it this. Ge- I call it the generation game. Um, we were. You know, when I say we were fortunate to go to war, uh, that does not resonate with with all people. You guys understand what I'm saying. We were fortunate to have a purpose to go to war, to to to, to meet evil where it was and defeat it. Um, but that that's just a good timing. It was just timing, and, and you don't get to choose your timing as a as a warrior uh, or as a war fighter uh, of when war happens. Um, but the best you can do is make sure that you're ready for when it does come. And quite frankly, when 9-11 happened, a lot of us did not feel ready. We were, we were training for the next, what you see happening in the Ukraine right now for the sure. next conventional war. That was our focus. So you were at Team 3 and they were, because uh, wasn't originally like the SEAL teams broken up into different parts of the world. Like there was cold water, there was jungle, and everybody kind of had their specialty. You're, you're absolutely correct. And Team 3 was sort of a you know, Middle East desert uh, focus, but that went away just due to the needs of the war. And that Team 3 or Team 5 wouldn't be able to handle the requirements on their own. So they, regardless of what the specialties were, they, uh, they deployed all SEAL teams. And so we got away from that geographic or terrain-based focus 
and everyone was pretty much doing the same workup for direct action raids, mobility, uh, land warfare, things along those lines. We actually, you know, truthfully, we degraded uh, our water skills because it just wasn't relevant in the global war on terror. But there's a big push to get back to, from what I've heard, no longer uh, attach the community, back to that geographic focus and then back to the water. So I I did a number of seminars for the guys at um, SDB team uh, in Hawaii and went over to the clamshell and worked with those guys. Got a chance to see the seal delivered vehicles and all that. And uh, that is the worst fucking job I've ever seen. Those dudes were like 13 for 15 hours underwater. Like they were taking me through all the mixtures that they do. To, I mean, like I was like, holy shit, dude, you guys are strapped in this thing underwater. They're like laminating magazines reading under there. I mean, like of anything that I saw, that was the one thing that I was like, there's no fucking way I would do this. You will hear no disagreements from me. Those guys are as good as it, it, it gets in, in the water, and that is not an easy job. No. And, and I always had a, a deep, deep respect for those guys because I don't want to take a fifteen or uh, a five-hour ride yeah. uh, off the coast of North Korea in uh, in December. Uh, and the wild thing is, is a bunch of the dudes were all big dudes like me. And the yeah. only thing I thought was like, did you guys finish last in the that, in like the PT yeah. test or like what it was? Because I was like looking, and they were all like kind of big jack dudes, and I'm like. You guys were too small to get over the wall or something happened. There had to be some filtering out that got you guys here. Yeah, they, they, they usually volunteered. They usually volunteered out of out of buds and went that uh, that direction. But um, again, they have a very specific focus. But when they are called, the, those guys perform. Yeah, it was cool. Um, as we were going through it, the guy, um, it was, um, God, their master chief was Kevin Fields. I don't know if you remember Kevin. I, I um, know the name. Yeah, so he was super, he was funny. Like one eyebrow was completely white, which I'm pretty sure comes from being a master chief where they roll you in salt. But uh, I got a chance to go and I was, it was cool because they were like, you know, we have no budget. Um, it's just an open check because the shit we do is so far off of like, like nobody wear any medals. Nothing's ever presented. Like, you know, we kind of operate in this different kind of, uh, you know, kind of dark space. And it was super cool to go over and really see something that nobody ever talks about. And like, you're never going to see those things in Time Magazine and nobody, you know, it was, uh, yeah, I mean, that was a, a really fun, fun couple of years when I got to go over there. And to some degree for special operations as a whole, it needs to be put back in that black area. Um, hey, I understand the need for transparency uh, amongst the American people, but something shouldn't be transparent. And, and for the protection of, you know, the the operators within the, the larger special operations community, something should not be advertised in the uh, in the media, bottom line. Wow. So with, um, and dude, there's so much to unpack yeah. here. Um, you know, the, uh, I sometimes wonder like, it, you know, like we, we had a situation, we were 20 years in, um, you know, at war. And I remember, uh, we went down and taught, a uh, we were in contracting basically to implement power athlete systems for the 18th Airborne Corps. So we were basically going to implement what we do here for 90,000 troops. And so we went down and worked with the uh, 18th Airborne Corps. That was like the 101st and the 82nd and all those guys yes. down to Fort Bragg. Yep. And General LaCamera, who's the guy that brought us in, um, made a really interesting point as we were talking about culture. He's like, you got to remember that there's kids joining the military that were born after 9-11. So, I mean, we've been at war long enough to actually have a full generation of kids come through that don't necessarily remember why we're doing this. And, uh, you know, it's real easy for us to sit. I mean, we you know turned on the TV and I was living in Philly playing for the Chiefs or Eagles. And saw the, you know, the planes hit the tower. And I'm sure like, you know, you remember it like everybody does. It's kind of like our parents talking about, you know, the day that Kennedy died. Yeah. You know, my mom's like can tell you exactly what she was wearing, where she was. It was just crystallized in her minds. So now we have a situation where these kids 
you know, are, are, you know, were born after that point and they don't necessarily know. And so like, how do we continue to keep this, this culture going? How do we, you know, uh, um, like crystallize this warfighter mentality. And that was one of the things he tasked us with. And, uh, it became extremely difficult in the army because there's so much bureaucracy. And what was nice is after working for two years with the big army, uh, to realize how lucky we were to work with the special operations and NSW and that deal. Cause everything, everybody's very, very clear. They've already gone through a lot of, you know, phases to get to where we get to in, interact with them. And people are very, very focused on what they want to do, uh, has, and this is the scary thing where now all of a sudden the war ends and here we are today. I'm going to wake up to see what's happening with Putin in the Ukraine. And, you know, I mean, uh, I mean, we were talking about the Keystone pipeline and the fact mm-hmm. that the U S buys Russian oil. I mean, we're, we're so ingrained in this world, uh, world, economy like how does this whole thing start again and uh is america necessarily ready for it It, we're we're always ready and and rumsfeld said it best you you go to war with the army that you have not the army you wish you had um and and no matter you don't get again you don't get to choose your timing but you better be ready when when that that uh, red flag goes up um I have full faith in the armed forces right now. Do I want to see young American lives go over there, uh, over a conflict that that doesn't necessarily involve us? Um, not really. Um, and I say that as you know, having a, a son who's fourteen and a daughter's about to turn eighteen. Um, you know, twenty years. There, there is much like the Dunning Kruger effect, and that that you know coming down the the the, uh, the valley of despair and then up the slope of enlightenment. When you join the military early on, it's about love of country. And that evolves um, to where, you know, it's not about the United States of America, even though we love it uh, to the bottom of our heart. It becomes about the brothers and the sisters to your left and the right. And, um, you know, you spend enough time in the military, you just get fatigued on the bureaucracy, on the on the leadership. And, and, hey, some of the best leadership I've ever seen is was in the SEAL teams and special operations. And some of the worst leadership I've ever seen was in special operations. But even more so, you you know, I, I remember one somebody, it was actually a foreign soldier that was referring to special operations and said, you guys are lions led by dogs. And that was a reference towards our national uh, leaders. But towards the, the end of my uh, career, and I actually deployed with a army unit uh, as an exchange troop commander for them uh, in 2000, uh, it was 2014. We were the first ones into uh, Iraq for the whole ISIS thing. Mm-hmm. And I just, I hit a wall. I was done with the the BS. Uh, we basically had no authorities to do anything. Yazidi people were getting massacred and were, you know, less than 100 miles away to do something. We had no authorities to do anything. And I, I lost all my, my soul. So it's not surprising that when a lot of guys leave the, uh, or retire, spend 20 years, they're just done with government. Well, I mean, uh, just when we went through in terms of the contracting thing, there was uh, it, it was really wild uh, with our program. The guys at the top, like the you know the general officers and those individuals, were all like forward thinking, understood it, were super switched on, and all the guys at the bottom wanted it. There was this middle management. Uh, I, I refer to them as turkeys, which are just big butted birds that fly, make a lot of noise in a mess. Uh, that were literally this just black hole, and I'm like the like like the disconnection between these guys and these guys is stuck in this just abyss and it's policy. It's this. I mean, I like my first thing is like this guy sits in front of a computer sending emails all day. Like uh, what's he doing in terms of like actually getting better. And it just became this really weird thing as we got into when I realized that uh, there's 
like such a disconnect between the people at the top and the bottom that I don't even know how we're effective in anything with uh, in that realm. So we're very selective about the operators that make it through the special operations assessment selection. You have to be equally as um, critical on the people that you let within to, or into the special operations community within the support realm. The people that handle acquisitions, people that handle logistics, people that handle your intelligence that will tell you to go out on a target, even your JAGs, your, your, your military lawyers. You have to screen them to make sure that they have a, a bias for action, that they understand the purpose of the mission, that they're mission-driven. I mean, look at it. Rob DeSantis, if you didn't know it, was the lawyer for SEAL Team 1. He was yeah. a Navy JAG uh, and had an amazing reputation. because I had no idea on Rod DeSantis' yeah. uh, background mm-hmm. until I actually researched it. And I was like, holy shit. Like this, is, yeah, He's a legit dude. Stud. Yeah, yeah. Yale baseball uh, yeah. team captain. Uh, but he had a great reputation. Because he always found a way to get to yes. Hey, we want to go do this operation. We understand that there's rules of engagement. Um, there's some nuances to this specific mission. How do we get this done? And how do we stay within you know the legal, uh, you know, green area, so to speak? And lawyers would find a way to get to yes. And it's the same thing. If you know these generals are, are, are eager about getting this training uh, going, it's you know you got to have people that are willing to support them and move that football rapidly. But that's that's government contracting for you. Oh, man. It's uh, dude. I always joke, too, that uh, uh, the government, especially in the military, it's like a big black hole they throw money into that. Uh, as long as the same amount goes in every year and just a little bit more, if less if the money comes back out, then they, fl- they flip out like we have to spend all this and get substantial products to show, hey, we. Oh, that's where the money is versus. So they would uh, we came to the conclusion they would rather spend 20 million dollars on trap bars they'll never use than actually spend a million bucks to actually train somebody how to use them. Because at the end of the year, the bean counter should be like, well, no, no, well, we got these. And uh, it was just this weird thing within contracting where they were more interested in investing in hard items like uh, bullets, beans and boots was the yes. comment we were that actually investing in, in increasing proficiency of an individual through education wasn't as valuable as boons be or boots, beans and bullets. So I, I, I do remember this, you know, one of the things that we wanted at our respective outstations, even in Afghanistan and Iraq, it didn't matter where we were going, is, is protein powder. And it was so hard to procure protein powder through the government contracting system. Of course, there was boxes upon boxes of Otis Spunkmeyer uh, muffins, uh, every type of Otis Spunkmeyer muffin you could, you could want, and, and candy and all that, but we couldn't get protein powder. And I, I remember our army equivalent had figured out the, the means to, to secure it. But I remember that being the biggest, the biggest fight. And it's just, it's so common sense. If anything, I want to make sure that I'm maintaining, you know, my, my protein intake per day, uh, even if it puts me into ketosis because I'm not eating uh, enough carbs, whatever. I just want my protein powder and, and the operators wanted it as well. But that's what gets so frustrating. Now, some people have the temperament of they, they understand that's a government and they just can continue on with the career for 30, 40 years. But you know, you talk about focus. I think it was Elon Musk that recently said, he's like, hey, this is all about, you know, capital allocation and how the government spends their money. And basically, he was going to the point that, you know, of all people, government should not be involved in capital allocation because they are so bad at it. Well, we'll, we'll think about this. Uh, you can't have somebody voting and spending money that doesn't have any repercussions or any vested interests. Like for me, for example, if uh, I have no vested interest in your survival, but yet I'm making all your financial and decisions for you and your family, 
like like there's no ramifications. Like if if, if a bill gets voted in or they spend money here and the money's uh, not spent properly or whatever it goes, like there's nobody's held accountable. I mean, I think what's interesting for us is that if I go out and act like an idiot and blow my money, I have to be accountable for this. I got the IRA, I got debt, I got all this other stuff. But if there's zero accountability because nobody is, you know, I mean, it, it, like like I think about in, uh, you know, our lawmakers in Congress are elected to, you know, represent the people, but they're, they're representing special interest. And, you know, if uh, they vote in a bill and the bill goes sideways and something bad happens, it's not as if, you know, we're basically uh, filing charges on them, you know, deducting it from their bank accounts. I mean, they kind of vote and move with impunity. And uh, I don't think you can have a country run where the people making decisions don't have vested interest in, uh, you know, in survival for themselves. Especially little to no accountability whatsoever. None. So, you know, at, at, at theory, taxes, I don't mind paying taxes. I don't like it. Well, amount, but I have an issue with the people that are spending it. Yeah. And exactly to your point, yeah. there's no, there's no, uh, there's no oversight. Consequences for you. Uh, so my dad was a, a lobbyist in Sacramento uh, when he was an early guy, worked, worked for the auto club. And then he was a young attorney. And then uh, he um, was good buddies with Pete Wilson and uh, knew a lot of players within politics. And uh, he was, he always told me, he goes, you know, a lot of people go in um, to, you know, with this idea of servicing and then, you know, you want to, you know, go serve your country, whatever. And then they kind of find this honeypot. And his greatest one was Diane Feinstein. Feinstein, I think however you say her name. Her husband was a contractor and he was able to get a contract to redo every post office in America. And that was basically handed to him, you know, through, you know, her obviously political connections. And so his company re- basically rebuilt and redid every post office in America, I think is what my dad told me. And he's like, the guy made billions of dollars, which she in turn invested into property that at the time was considered wetland. And then all of a sudden rules changed 10 years later and now they could build on that. And he was just, he went through this whole thing on how she had, you know, just basically got in and here was her husband who was able to do these things and how, you know, you look at Pelosi and you look at all these ones. If if you go back and you stack and you see the way that it's done, um, it's, 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 I mean, they have a vested interest in their own survival and none in our own. And they've done a very good job. And the problem is, is that one, they don't, they don't see anything wrong with it and nobody fucking calls them out on this shit. And it's like, the, you know, we were talking about like the news cycle. I mean, there's still people in Afghanistan. There's still Americans in Afghanistan. And where's that on the news cycle? So we, we, I don't know how much time we have left. You got as much I, as you I, want. I, I think we're going to solve America's problems right here. Fucking, I'm excited. We're, we're in. No. So the accountability piece is huge. There, there's, there's no accountability whatsoever for anything right now. I know Biden just, what, uh, forgave $16 million in, in student loans. Uh, that doesn't reinforce the uh, the right message. Look at it from he, he wait. Uh, I, I didn't know he forgave student loans. Yes, so it just came out sixteen billion in student loans. Um, uh, it just you know, it's amazing how many things we teach our children, and then we violate as adults. There's no such thing as a free lunch. Yet, then we go and forgive sixteen billion in uh, in student loans, where you teach your kids, hey, if you can't afford it. Don't buy it. But then yeah. what do we do as adults? Rack up credit card debt. It's, it's the hypocrisy is amazing. But, uh, you know, again, talking to Andy uh, stuff about, about this one is, uh, you know, I think everyone who served over there, especially Afghanistan, was doing a lot of self-reflection uh, of how things ended in August of 2021 for the end of the other uh, war, especially with the loss of those 13 young lives. I was uh, I was going to ask you as uh, somebody who fought there and lost people, 
because uh, I tried to get this out of Andy. We we had a podcast and he wouldn't fucking. I was like, God damn it, say what you. And he was he was so guarded, probably because he wanted to keep it for his podcast. Yeah, but like how uh, how do you like like how do you feel? I mean, to see the way that exit went down after the investment of time, money. I mean, the fact that like there was no oversight. I mean, it took Russia three years to pull out, and we did it in a weekend. And we left billions of dollars worth of equipment. I mean, I think I saw that, you know, now those individuals are probably like the fourth, fourth most well, uh, you know, well-armed army on the planet. I mean, we left all of our stuff. I mean, we pull out. We're running like, like you said, dogs. I mean, it's, uh, I mean, I know how I feel looking and seeing like, you know, there's a lot of good, you know, I mean, the amount of people we lost. I mean, it's an un, uh, yeah. I, you know, I got the, uh, the news. I, I had my Wi-Fi up on the airplane. Um, when I was flying and it, it had just come across in the news cycle that those 13 young lives were, were lost. I forget where I was flying at the time. Um, but I'll, I'll tell you what I'm not going to do is I'm not going to point fingers, but I do think there, there needs to be accountability. And, and when I was talking to Andy about this, you know, the, regardless of the outcomes, the worst thing we can do is not have a very candid, vulnerable discussion amongst military leaders and national leaders of, what went wrong? What could we have done differently so that the next generation is armed with that information and hopefully, hopefully does not make the same mistakes that we do or we did. But, you know, I looked at it internally um, and, and I didn't have many good feelings, man. I, I felt like a failure. I hold myself accountable because there, there were times, I'm, I'm going to be honest, where we were forced to train uh, a, you know, our, our Afghan counterparts. And we were pushed to say, you know, hey, they're ready. They're ready. And we're like, God, actually, they're not ready. Well, hey, you've been with them for 14 months. You're telling me you, you haven't accelerated their, their skills. Yeah, we may have to a certain point. But these guys are not ready to go out on their own. They're not able to, to defend a region if you gave them a, a geographic region in, in Afghanistan. So there's, there's accountability on my part that I ever said, hey, these guys were ready uh, because I felt that, that pressure from, uh, from up top. Um, but there definitely needs to be accountability at all levels to have that conversation uh, about Afghanistan, about Iraq, about the global war on terror and, and what, what we messed up, quite frankly. And I don't think a lot of leaders want to do that because then that means the, the you know, fingers end up pointing at them. The media is going to exploit that for a national leader being vulnerable uh, to admit his own mistakes. But uh, unfortunately, that's a product of the environment uh, in America right now. But, um, you know, I did hear one SEAL go on national news who I don't think ever served in Afghanistan. And uh, he said that, you know, hey, well, you know, we, we kept the enemy at bay for 20 years. And I'm like, is this the everyone gets a trophy uh, sort of concept here? Yeah. Because America wasn't attacked uh, before 9-11 uh, until December 7th, uh, 1941. Well, I mean, this so, so this is the thing that was so confusing to me. And I still remember George Bush, you know, that whole deal. You know, uh, we're going to go fight the war on terror which to me feels like uh, we're going to try to feed the homeless. You know, it felt so open ended. it felt like a, a checkbook. And I think if we're going to declare war, we're going to do this. There has to be a clear defined like picture of what victory looks like. And I think what happened and, uh, you know, Evan Halford said at the best uh, CEO for Black Rifle Coffee, yeah. yes. you know, former you know, CIA guy, uh, wars of occupations are transfers of wealth. So when you get into a, a war of occupation, it's about transferring wealth of the American taxpayer to different government entities and contractors. And, you know, look at Halliburton and all these people. I mean, billionaires were made within the last 20 years. 
And all of that money was just actually a slow stream or a fast stream, however you want to call it, of American tax dollars being funneled to these different corporations. And uh, he's like, dude, words of occupation. There was never a clear defined uh, version of what victory looked like. And I get nervous with, uh, with all these things where it's like, we're going to fight the war on terror. What the fuck does that mean? Like who, where? I mean, so that means we can go anywhere where terror is instead of saying, you know what, this is in retaliation for this. These are the bad people. And when the bad people are gone, we're going to come home. And I think we should never, if we're going to go to a fight, we need to know what it looks like to win a fight. And more importantly, if we're going to go do it, go win and then come home instead of like getting there and then basically turning our, our guys into fucking targets because all of a sudden you slap the handcuffs on them. So much to unpack there. Um, well, one, Evan is 100% right. And... We all know this. I mean, John Doerr that wrote the book, Measure Everything. If you do not have defined, very objective goals, then you're, you're, you're pissing into the wind. Sure. And you don't know what victory looks like. You have to define success. I don't know where in our thought process we thought that, hey, we can go nationalize Afghanistan, a completely different culture. That lives, I mean, there's people who live mean, one valley deep. You mean, wait a minute, we can't bring America to everybody after 3,000 years of war and fighting and, you know, what, what do we call it? The graveyard of empires? The graveyard of empires. I mean, if you go look at everybody smash their fucking empire on the rocks of that fucking place and those people have been at war forever. I mean, like I remember uh, um, Andy, Andy telling me, he's like, dude, they're basically making AKs out of like tin in like dirt out of like with molds and these guys are basically built. I mean, he's like, dude, it, it's insane to see what these guys are doing. With resourceful, it. resourceful. They were absolutely resourceful. What was, you know, what's crazy is you'd go over there and you'd see a Russian helicopter frame, you know, sitting on the ground or a Russian tank and that, you know, we'd all read, you know, the mirror mm -hmm. over the mountain. Um, but it sort of brings it home. To that that graveyard of empires when you see the the, the Russian hulks. and the Russian I mean if uh, if you and I'm, I know you've done your research and you've read the history the Russians were absolutely fucking brutal like we have this idea of Geneva Convention and we're gonna you know the, the court of public opinion and where Americans were held to a certain standard there was none like I mean if you read any of the stories I mean the fucking Russians were brutal butchers oh yeah on those people I mean they set them on they fire oh yeah I mean it's just I mean, that's within the the nature of the way they do stuff. I mean, we, we have this idea of fair play. There was zero. I mean, the like just the the viciousness in which they fought and they couldn't break those people. And then we we go over with our American ideals where we're going to bring you candy bars and fucking, you know, thumbs up. And, and Coca-Cola's. And Coca-Cola's. I, I haven't read that history, but had the fortunate opportunity when we were teaching seminars to go to Seoul, Korea, and extra time went to the Korean War Museum. And I was blown away by the the history of the peninsula. So they were, they've been at war for act. They're still. Yeah, 3,000 plus years. Yeah. And you you really saw the wave of, I mean, industrial revolution, the introduction of different like guns, tanks, airplanes. Everything is at this beautiful museum and laid out in timelines and representations. And you see the weapons from like the evolution from the sword to the gun to the plane and all this. So it's a beautiful place, like compared to then the desert, a little bit different. But at the same time, like uh, walking in there is a a man and seeing this history unfold 3000 years in one afternoon. Crazy. One, uh, one of my most favorite things was, I'm not going to tell the individual, but I got to see pictures. Uh, when we were out at SDV, uh, satellite pictures of the beaches. I think I've told you this in North Korea, they rake the beaches every night. And then every morning they get up and they walk the beach to see if there's footprints, uh, yeah. the entire coastline. And, uh, I saw satellite pictures 
of literally little people. And I'm like, what are all those people? That's the military raking the beach every night. And then they go walk it in the morning, the entire coastline. Smart. Smart. <laughs> like, I Committed. mean, they, they can move entire battalions underground. They have zero light signature. Like, I mean, just like I, I got a, a, a briefing when we were at SDV on, uh, on North Korea because that was a big target for them. And they were just showing me some really cool stuff. And I was like, holy shit, dude, I had no concept. They're like, we have no fucking concept of what happens there. That's a, a testament. Not a good testament, but a testament to, yeah. to how that government runs themselves and keeps a, a, a shadow over, over their, their their region, which I know is horrible for their uh, their people. Oh yeah. To to your point, here's here's what I would summarize it in, in trying to bring our our democracy and our ideals to 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 wildly different cultures is one don't commit to war lightly. I think after nine eleven, the answer is there. You're, you're going to war, and we're going to make those people pay. But when you go, yes. I mean, one, don't get comfortable. We got so comfortable over there that we looked forward to deployments. Like we, we looked forward to it. And had they kept us over there and said, hey, you're not coming home until this is over, I think it would have been a completely different mindset, a completely different uh, you know, uh, drive to, to get it done as quickly as possible. But when you commit to war, um, be violent. Be violent to a point that even your allies are like, don't ever mess with the Americans. End it as quickly as possible. That means there's going to be collateral damage and come home and, and bring our, our American boys and our American girls home. Bottom line. Um, yeah, it, I mean, you, you were happy to do it for the first few deployments, but it just that evolution of of yourself and your, your boys. I mean, I saw it in, in my guys. They're just like, wait, we're going to go back after this guy. And when we captured him last deployment, you're going to throw him in an Afghan jail and he's just going to be released within two weeks. There were guys that that our guys went out in, in action to raid, captured them, only to have them back on their target deck uh, a year later. That's and, and that just, I think for any smart person that just starts to close that that deal for them, they're like, yeah, I'm over this. It's done. I'm, I'm not putting my guys' lives on the line to go back and recapture this guy. Do you remember the movie uh, Heartbreak Ridge? Oh, of course, it's one of my favorites. Uh, but he made uh, in there. He talked about we're uh, uh, we're two one and draw. Remember, he talked about we won World War One, World War Two. Uh, Korea was a draw. We lost Vietnam. Um, I mean, I don't know what. To, I mean, Afghanistan. It's a, it's a it, loss. It, it's a no. It's in Iraq. I mean, well, to me, Iraq was a loss. That that's me personally. I, again, I'm not. Well, know, I mean, to other people, it may be a victory. Well, yeah. like, uh, but the problem is, and and we could probably spitball it here. Like, what's the definition of success? For us to implant uh, kind of an American regime of capitalism, democracy, and whatever else we want to do. I mean, was that the goal for us to go and basically create little America in Iraq and Afghanistan? Well, don't fight the last war. Don't fight your last war just because you were highly successful in World War II and you 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 brought you know civility. I wouldn't say civility, but you basically helped rebuild two industrialized nations, Germany and Japan. They were industrialized before the start of the war. You help rebuild them to a point where you know their economies uh, were, were contributing to the the world economy. That worked then. It wasn't going to work in Afghanistan. Yeah, but they were never developed. Well, I mean, if if you look at the pictures of uh, of Iraq and those countries back in the seventies, they had universities. I mean, like it's pretty wild to see what's happened within the last fifty years with the advent of uh, you know this kind of extremist Muslim it, deal, Islamic uh, yeah terrorism. And yeah. the same thing about uh, you know if, if you saw pictures of Bagram and Kabul. Yeah, back back in the seventies. I mean, you had 
girls it, girl, girl, wearing yeah, skirts. Yeah, and, dresses, and yeah. there and there were lakes, and there were universities, and it was education. And I mean, it, it was unreal to see pictures of like before and after from like the seventies today. And it, I mean, how like, so it just goes to show you that it only takes one generation for shit to go down, and that's what I think people don't realize. It only takes one generation for things to turn. So if you're not prepared to annihilate them, then just don't. Then don't go. Yeah. Well, I mean, but then the other big issue we ran into was, uh, you know, the enemy of our enemy is our friend. So we were over there actively, uh, you know, training the resistance against the Russians because we felt if we armed them. I mean, you know, if you go back and you understand the history, I mean, you know, Saddam Hussein and these guys. I mean, it, it's it's so crazy to think that, like, you know, especially with uh, Osama bin Laden. I mean, all of these guys were, were CIA operatives and we were arming them. And, you know, and now all of a sudden then the Russians go out, we peel and then those people turn on us thinking that they, you know. It's, it's amazing how things circle around. Amazing how things circle around. And, and at the time, that, that made sense during the Russian occupation of Afghanistan. But it's amazing how that came back to, to bite us in the ass. Yeah. And I think Charlie Wilson's uh, war, for, for people that don't want to read about Charlie Wilson, go watch the movie. And at the end, uh, was it, uh, I'm forgetting the guy's name, Dustin, uh, is it Dustin Hoffman? Actor that, uh, not Hoffman, but uh, basically said, we will see. We'll see. Yeah. Said the wise man, we'll see. He sort of foresaw that, you know, the Taliban in even more extreme form, or I'm sorry, Al-Qaeda, even more extreme form of, uh, of the Taliban was going to come in and exert their control and change Af- Afghanistan for the, uh, the worst. Man, I mean, all right, so, so we've effectively pulled out of there. And now, uh, and this is, an, and everybody was telling me, like, oh, you're acting like Chicken Little, when all of a sudden uh, Biden goes in and actually approves a defense budget that was $25 billion greater than what Trump's was. In wartime, and upon seeing that, I'm like, is this basically them teeing up for what uh, you know? Because if you think, I think Evan Halford made a good point. He's like, in the 200 and I don't know where we're at, 250 years of this country, uh, we've only been at peace for about 17 years, hmm. and it's America's greatest export is war. So, I mean, is that a gearing up where now all of a sudden we're in this situation and this is our next big piece? You know, I I, I would say always stay at a, a perpetual state of war. Always is. The understanding that there's somebody at the gate that does not like America for the beacon of light that it is. And so we will always have enemies. I think we just have to be smarter about the the conflicts we choose to uh, to engage in, which is, you know, even I've evolved in, in a lot of my perspectives where, you know, I, I go with the old quote, the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to, do to stand by and do nothing. Yeah. Uh, was that uh, Einstein? Was that Einstein? I don't think it was Einstein. I think it was, uh, we're going to have to look that up. Uh, Charles. Um, and, and I believe that. And I think as I get older, now that my kids are of military age, I was happy to go. You know, and I saw my old man, a guy who's, you know, hard as nails. Um, you know, I watched him cry because I'd come home wounded on my second deployment. And every time he saw me go, like, it was just hard for him to, to see his his son go to war, know that he may not come back. But that didn't affect me in the slightest. Not that I'm not empathetic. I was happy to go. I think you develop empathy as you age. Because I had that none. That's probably true. And now that I'm a father and as I'm growing older, I realize that you develop empathy over, over uh, I mean, maybe some people have it early on. I had none. And then all of a sudden, like once you see your own kids, because I had none for myself, you know, you fucking shatter yourself in the rocks, it's fine, I'll rebuild. And, uh, exactly. you know, now all of a sudden you see kids and they hurt themselves and you like, oh, shit, like that's where empathy comes from, I think, for being a parent. You, you are 100% correct. 
And I think I, I've, I've felt that my empathy has grown since I've gotten out of the military and I've had time to, I've had nothing but time to reflect it. Nothing but time. But, um, you know, I just, I've, I've evolved in the sense that, yeah, there's evil out there. We, keep, we can't combat all evil. And especially if it's my kids going forward. And I know that is so selfish, man. Uh, you know, uh, I just would hate to see my kids wrapped up in a conflict with leaders that I no longer trust. Yeah. That's, that's my, that's my bone to pick. Now, if there's great leadership that I trusted, um, you know, my, if my son still to this day tells me, Hey dad, I think I want to join the military, whatever branch he wants to join. Yeah. Inwardly, am I going to be like stoked and, and proud of him? Uh, yes. But in time of war, that that's, that's a different beast in itself. I just, I think I would try to reenlist oh. in whatever unit he's, uh, he's, into. <laughs> he's like, come on, old man. Uh, what's America, what's amazing about America? Um, if you think about like most of the cultures or most of the countries on this, on this earth are kind of homogeneous societies. You know, if you go to, and I'm sure you've been all over, I mean, you go to Norway, you go to Sweden, everybody looks like they're pretty much related. You go to Denmark, whatever, and you come actually to America and you have like such a melting pot that this experiment that is America has never existed anywhere else on the planet. I mean, you look, you go to Africa. I mean, dude, the ethnic genocide is insane. I mean, where they'll go and they'll slaughter people just because they come from a different bloodline or follow a different religion. I mean, we, you know, we talk about how terrible America is. I mean, dude, you look at what happens in Africa on a daily basis and uh, it's like, uh, it's unbelievable. And this has happened through history that people have slaughtered people that don't look like them or don't follow within what they want. And uh, we have a deal in America where, you know, you look at this melting pot of people where, you know, the only common denominator is your Americans. And uh, this has never existed on anywhere else on the planet. And um, I think people don't always give it enough credit. Right now, people are just willing to, to crap on America. And I'm talking about Americans. Americans are willing to crap on their We're the fucking worst. So people are fighting to get into our borders and you have people sitting around on their fucking iPhones complaining how bad it is. Perspective is one of the most powerful tools that anyone can have. And I think, you know, I'd like to say as, as you age, you get more perspective, but that, I don't think that's necessarily true. The more you travel, the more you go and see other cultures and sure. other societies and how bad they have it over there. Again, talking about Nepal, uh, you know, as we were walking the trail from Lukla to, to Namchi, uh, the, the river has to be, it's gotta be somewhere close to 40 degrees. It's gotta be freezing. Um, and there's a child being bathed uh, by that water, screaming his head off, and like the daughter's waiting for her turn. I mean, they and they're happy. The, the, I mean, they were kind to everyone. Yeah, because they're doing cold water therapy. They're Don't you know? It, yeah, it's, 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 it, yeah, yeah, they're doing regenerative cold water therapy. It's super cool here to do. But if, if that was Americans, you would have social media, uh, you know, off the hook because people are, are showering in sub, uh, you know, uh, not freezing, but cold temperatures and. We've lost perspective well, and, and people are, it's, it's led to a sense of entitlement. It's, somebody said it best. Yeah, America, we've got a, we've got a lot of problems, dude. We've got a, we've got our lion's share of problems. But even if you multiply those by five, we're still the best nation. In the yeah. Well, we, uh, uh, Jordan Peterson did a speaking uh, tour. So Tex and I went with actually took Doc, uh, yeah, uh, Parsley and uh, Brandy. It was, it was last month. Wasn't yeah, it? yeah, yeah. So so we went on his first night, and it, it was really uh, it was excellent to see him stand up there. I mean, if anything, like he's going to have to develop a higher amount of fitness just to be able to stand up. And it was just <laughs> it, it was interesting. But uh, he had a uh, before he, he he referenced it, he had uh, gone on Joe Rogan for about four hours, 
And so I've been working through that podcast and in there, Joe was talking about, you know, the iPhones and how Apple's gotten rich. And this kind of brings up this idea of like, you know, this is a terrible exploitation. And he brought up a great point where he's like, it's not at all. We're basically giving these underdeveloped countries a chance to catch up and that every country has to go through this process of, you know, like, uh, you know, $5 an hour and they're going to go through this process. And if we didn't have them built there, they wouldn't be affordable. So then these individuals couldn't afford to build them. They wouldn't make the money. And more importantly, we couldn't get them to the consumer. So it wouldn't exist that this is a necessary evil that every country has to go through this maturation process of like, you know, developing. And this is how you develop countries by these bigger countries farming their business and allowing these individuals to make a living. And, you know, we're over here from our ivory towers looking down, but $5 to those individuals, you laugh at it, you scoff at it, it's money on your couch. That's the difference between them and their entire family living in existence. And that while, yes, we look at it as exploitation, this is what's putting food in these people's mouths. And it was such an interesting perspective that, you know, it's so easy for us to look through our ivory tower and feel so bad for these individuals and feel bad for ourselves. But if you think about it, I mean, uh, like the only form of like, uh, um, um, you know, they talk about you know, world hunger. We throw away more food than any country on the planet, you think, in just excess. Uh, you know, there's uh, like nobody's starving unless they're trying to do intermittent fasting because they think it's cool. I mean, nobody's showering in cold water you mean unless. A caloric, caloric deficit. Yeah. Gotcha. Right. Yeah. I mean, pe- people are showering in cold water because they think it's restorative, not because they don't have fucking hot water. So, I mean, a lot of these things we're having to create hardship because things have gotten so easy. I mean, if you go back to the Matrix, you said the same thing. That when they made everybody successful, they failed in that version of the matrix and they lost entire pods that they had to build hardship in, which to me is like the most telling part of our society. Uh, I, w- I want to stay here. So this this in my mind leads to leadership, personal accountability and how we as leaders can use created hardship to now teach and grow. So I'm using myself as an example. High school lacrosse coach. I have six hours a week with the opportunity now to express hardship even though i understand the community that i live in and the opportunity that these kids have in school and parents and all that like vehicles and everything so now it's still my responsibility i understand yes this is where i live but i have six hours to make an opportunity to then instill leadership and create perspective so now this leads to your experience with your mba from your experience with your military, how can we now make leadership, hardship, responsibility a choice? So we're all familiar with the, the phrase, uh, get comfortable with being uncomfortable. Yeah. It's almost like you have to deliver, deliberately place yourself into hardship as you're saying. Hardship is the most beautiful thing in the world. I would not be the man who I, I am without the hardship of the Marine Corps and the recon community and the SEAL community. And I, it's only through that hardship when you're pushed to your mental and physical limits that true learning and growth takes place. And the same for, for the kids that you're coaching is they probably don't look forward to those six hours because they know you're going to push them. As long as you're explaining it, why you're doing what you're doing and trying to reinforce those points, those kids may not understand it for another 10 years. But that, that's okay. I don't think I did uh, at that age or why my coaches pushed me uh, so hard. Um, we've gotten comfortable. We've gotten comfortable as a nation and, you know, it, that from that comfort has, you know, entitlement's been born. And it seems like it's so easy now to say, because you have so much, I have so little. And it's your fault that I have so little, which goes back to your accountability uh, point. So 
to me, when we talk and when I talk about leadership, uh, I talk about discipline and accountability. If you look up the definition of discipline, it's usually an external factor. You screwed up. I'm going to come in and I'm going to impose uh, discipline. Same with accountability. Hey, you screwed up. I'm going to have to hold you accountable. That's an external factor. One of the things, and I think the biggest missed opportunity, which is a whole different uh, line, is we are not teaching leadership within our education system. And I remember the the University of Texas MBA, you know, one of the the, uh, professors said, hey, well, University of Texas MBA, we produce leaders. And in a very tactful and professional manner, I I said, hey, I I sort of disagree with that. You've got these, I don't want to say kids, you have these men and women for two, two years. In the military, we're very good at leadership development. In fact, we're better than the private sector. And that's what my, my management consulting firm does is we build leadership development systems for companies. Uh, leadership development takes a very, very long time. Usually, I'm sure you had great folks and it sounds like you had great folks. That's where the, you know, the most important leadership development takes place in the, uh, the formative years. But uh, you, know, you cannot have self-discipline with self-accountability. And it seems like nobody is willing to hold themselves accountable today. If something goes wrong, the first reaction is to point fingers at somebody else and say it's their fault. And if if you do that first, then then your discipline is going to suffer. And so those two, accountability and, and, and discipline, are so in, just so linked at the hip that if you don't have one, you're not going to have the other. Uh, one of the guys uh, that we work with at um, at uh, um, at Damnick uh, shot me a question. And it was like, you know, what's the deal with like, uh, because there's this big push right now we we're joking about, about intermittent fasting and uh, cold water explosion and infrared saunas and all these different things that people are looking at in terms of like life extension. And more importantly, like, why is this working the same way? And I was like, you know what? I never, never really broached that. And uh, even though we've had a ton of people come on the pro, you know, the, the podcast talking about heat shock proteins and this, and they get into the science, like I've never got actually a definitive answer. And so I started researching and I read uh, David Sinclair's book called Life, uh, I think it's called Lifespan. Um, I might be fucking that, I'm pretty sure. But so I read the book a couple of years ago. He's got a podcast, which you guys want to check it out. But um, I ended up clicking through on his podcast and he made an interesting point where the greater stress we can put through our bodies and the closer we can have our bodies think that we're near death, the greater the gene expression in terms of longevity and health. So like if you get into like a 170 degrees heat shock protein, the body is, is sitting in a situation of like, I'm nearing the end of this thing and this is putting me in a situation that's out of comfort zone. And now I'm in something where I might potentially die if I was stuck in this thing for hours for, you know, like cooking like a fucking turkey. Uh, and what will happen is the genes will express in such a way that they become very positive and actually very regenerative and the healthiest versions of our gene expression. Same thing with cold water therapy. If I'm in here for two hours, I mean, obviously, you, you know, as a SEAL, you probably did a ton of cold water stuff in Coronado. But if you were to emerge in 40 degree cold water, other than maybe if you're Wim Hof and can do some breathing, mm-hmm. uh, most people will eventually fucking shiver and die like a, a, like Titanic, right? You know, uh, that type of situation. Well, never let go, John. Never let go. <laughs> and she had plenty of fucking room on that, on that fucking door for him. Uh, but, uh, the body will, and the genes will express in such a way. And, uh, they talked about, you know, uh, uh, hypoctic training and they went through all these different things, all causing a positive gene expression. The problem is, is that comfort on the exact opposite side of this, if you don't do these things, comfort actually causes the genes to express in negative ways. And that's why, like, if you don't continue to challenge yourself and put yourself the, you know, through these uh, you know, trials and tribulations and battles and put yourself in these stressful situations, 
your genes express in a negative way and you end up fucking killing you off earlier, which if you think in terms of a um, like an evolutionary kind of point of view that the genes would want to have the greatest expression for the individual that had the ability to withstand the greatest thing for the extension of like survival of the organism. So like, that's a interesting thing of like, you know, if uh, like, you know, you're the best fighter and you can get through close to death and somehow heal and get through it. Like those are the individuals we want to have pass on. So the body's going to give you the best chance by allowing your genes to express in a positive way. It's almost counterintuitive. Yeah. Yeah. But it, it's really the first. And, and I'm sure like Rob Wolf and we've had people on the podcast because a lot of times when I do podcasts, I just fucking black out because people will be like, oh, you had a great podcast. I'm like, we don't even know what we fucking talked about. But so I'm sure we've had people on the podcast that have explained it. But it was one of the the dev group guys that hit me up and it was it was a simple question. It's like, why is this working? Like, why are these people like pushing this? What's the uh, you know, what's the reason? And I realized I was like, holy fuck, I don't really know. I mean, I can tell you all the, the health benefits associated with it, but I don't know on the most basic cellular genetic level why this is causing this to work. And uh, I was on the Sinclair guy's podcast. Now, I don't buy into anything because uh, he's a uh, one meal a day vegan vegetarian. Uh, and then he and then all and then he also talks about when he lifts weights, he trains his thighs. Anybody it's like, hey, I'm going in today to train thighs. Like at that point, just like like the life bouncer gets to punch you in the face. So he's like, oh, I trained my thighs. And he's a one meal a day vegan vegetarian guy. So he totally lost me at that point because he was talking about, you know, the greatest way to survive is to keep muscle mass. So I'm eating one meal. Yeah, it, there was a lot of stuff. He, he's also like this big. So he's an he's a really small human. What, what's up with the assault on me? I just don't uh, get it. Before now. we get there, uh, to, to build upon that, John, is we as a human race have the opportunity. We have mentors. Like animals, stress, survival, genes pass on. But now, going back to, to accountability, we as mentors have the position. So that's what the aim with the kids, and this is a reese, like what separates a good from a great coach is your ability to train the emotional response to stress. And that's what I aim to bring to the kids. It's not, hey, what's our conditioning test time? No, how are we responding to conditioning? Is it, you know, hands on the knees? Yeah. Is it the... Oh God, stick on the heads. Is it like I come off the sideline after my run and just throw my gloves on the ground because I work so hard? No. And the instituting with the team, something I'm referring to is the science of the sideline. Like I want you to look, I'm holding you accountable for how your posture is. We can connect that back to Jordan Peterson, right? Chapter one in the 12 rules of life, how your posture is. If you look tired, don't act tired. Yeah. Certain, certain things like this, science of sideline. And now here we are in season. Look at those guys right now. Yeah. And so I'm using that, but we've laid the foundation, but aiming to, yes, we are going to work hard. It's my expectation. Like, I'll give you a pat on the back. I almost say good job, but aiming to teach the emotional response to the stress that I'm enlisting, hoping, yes, maybe 10 years from now, it does carry over. Dude, that shit works. Um, so when I was in the NFL, I had a deal where if I was on the field at the change of a quarter, I would sprint to where, and yeah. So, 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 aiming like, now to teach a lot of lessons yeah. that we've spoke about. Is, so, yes. like, if, if if we were on like one goal line and all of a sudden the quarter switch and you switch sides and uh, you got to go down, or um, I think it's it's a quarter. Yeah, no, it's on the quarter yeah. switch. Uh, I would sprint as fast as I could down because I never want anybody to think I'm tired. Being like, oh fuck, this guy's running down there. I would just take off running. And uh, there were numerous times where I could hear people groan when they saw it, like ah, oh. like realizing like we're in the fight and this motherfucker's sprinting. You know, and I'd stand down there and I'd wait. And I realized that, like, I'd just go down there and rest. They couldn't see me. 
But uh, I would take off running, and I think that there's a psychological deal. But what's wild is that um, I think for most of human society or human time, I mean, evolution, like whatever you want to call it, like the, like the point that we've been on this planet, there's been a certain amount of fucking hardship. I mean, when you had to get up every day and go out and try to kill something that wanted to kill you and drag it through and set Arctic temperatures. I mean, here we're talking about ice and cold. What if like, you know, here we are in our little like, uh, uh, you know, wood hut and we got to go out and try to make dinner tonight. Like, I mean, these people survived in such a way that you would think that like the strongest of, uh, you know, and they, I'm sure it came from the SEAL teams, the strongest I'll survive, but it's true within the species. And now we've created such a high level of, you know, of, uh, I guess, ease that, you know, you get people that are virtual dating in the fucking metaverse because they don't have the ability to go. I mean, I, I, I dude, I was going to tag you on this, this guy, um, well, you sent it. You're like, yeah. Oh, I, I did. Me. I did. So this, this person, uh, this roommate, whatever was filming her roommate on a metaverse date. So the guy had his IR goggles. He was sitting there with a glass of wine and he was like talking to the chick in the metaverse. He's like, oh, it's so great to get out. And then they go to like hug and kiss and they're video and the, the chick's videoing this dude doing this. And it's like my roommates on a metaverse date. This is the weirdest thing I've seen. And I said to these guys was just like fucking FML fucking fucking kill me. I, I, I'm glad I missed that. Uh, this this I guess this current form of dating, because when I moved to Austin, it was my last tour in the military. I was at 18 years. What year was this? Uh, 2015. OK. And, I, you know, freshly divorced and uh, didn't know a soul in Austin. And then uh, linked up some guys at the bar. They were cool, became good friends. And uh, they introduced me to Bumble and Tinder. And it was uh, it was game over from there. Uh, I miss that whole thing. So my wife and I got married in 2011. Uh, before you, all, the- you, you met naturally. Yeah, yeah. We you met at a location and actually talked at the gym. At the gym. There yeah, you. yeah. That, that's where you meet girls that are into fitness and like to bang weights. Those were the prime Tinder years. What? So my wife. Some, what some, was the t- like? What year did Tinder and all that stuff start? It, it was around, I want to say, yeah, because because uh, the only internet dating that I was uh, um, uh, made aware of was uh, Match.com because a guy that I played college football with, uh, he was getting married, and I was like, "Holy shit, you're getting married!" He called me, and he's like, "Going to invite us to the wedding," and I was like, "Great, where you know, where'd you meet your wife?" He's like, "Oh, I met her, you know, on the line." I'm like, "What do you mean you met her on the line?" He's like, "Oh, this thing called Match.com." I'm like, "What's that?" He's like, "It's literally Match.com, and you put in profiles and you explain it to me," and I'm like, "Holy shit, that works!" And you're getting married. And like it was the first time I'd ever heard of anybody like meeting somebody and like I was just it just didn't exist because we were at cool places where there were hot chicks. Match.com was ninety-five. No kidding. Tinder was twenty twelve. So I missed that. So the uh I've got to ask you guys, because I've I've you know, the gym is is church. One yeah. and everyone should be quiet and there should be very little talking. And I, I do put a you know, my my resting uh Bitch face on to 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 hopefully keep people from uh, coming up to me. But uh, do do people approach you at the gym? Uh, occasionally, and of course, I'm going to be very kind, respectful, and tactful, but try to keep the conversation short. Do you, but, where do you train at? Do you train at like a 24 hour Gold's Gym or something? So I've got a uh, I've got a small gym, nothing like yours. Called the small I call it the Small Minds Repair Shop. I repair my mind every day. Get get ready for uh, what's uh, in front of me. But we, well, you're always welcome to come train with us, dude. Done. And I'm going to have to to, to bring mention or cover a. Uh, a, uh, a workout, but we so we can lift weights, and then I can also show you how to build trucks and weld in the same place. <laughs> it sounds like a man hour. Um, so we work out at the uh, Lifetime downtown across from the Whole Foods. But uh, my wife is a beautiful woman. I'm batting way out of my uh, my my league, dude. Way out of my league. But we have this unsaid rule: we're like, you don't hit on people in the gym. Like, 
maybe a conversation, but like lifetime is the guys are like on the prowl. And it's usually not the big guys who are focused on like lifting and, and actually getting the workout in. It's like the smaller guys. And like this one guy this morning, she came back. She's like, the second you left and the guy saw me with you, comes up and like this guy was just, just straight hitting on me. Tried to end the conversation. She walked away. The guy comes back up. And she's being polite. But I just, I always thought when you go to the gym, always give women their, you know, their privacy, their space, let them get their workout in. It was an unsaid rule. To me, I don't know if you guys. Uh, one, um, so when we first moved out here and before we built the gym, I, I was training at uh, Gold's Gym. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't think a single person, actually the only person that I ever talked to and uh, ended up becoming friends with was uh, Jesse James, the bike builder. Yes. So I had met Jesse years before and I, I was in there and I see him and I was like, holy shit, you're pretty far from Long Beach. And he like kind of looked at me like kind of nervously. And I was like, yo. And then, and then we realized like, oh shit. So we become friends out of that. But other than that, uh, I've never had a single person ever talked to me at the gym and then we obviously built our gym but i uh i met my wife at a crossfit gym which if you train at a crossfit gym it's meant to be social yes and and you know and what's great about the crossfit gym is usually the chicks are go hard and they're all pretty talented in terms of like they can also lift weights whereas i've always thought that like at a commercial gym the girls that i saw were just doing i don't know what the fuck they were doing booty blasters and weird shit that paul carter talks about yeah on the step up the kickback yeah, we call those oh, yeah yes. yeah the uh, aerobics queens. Yeah, we used to uh, so um, there was uh, where we lived in Newport Beach. I lived in uh, the back or in um, uh, Dover Shores, and then I had to drive down 17th to where uh, a little power athlete was in Balboa and all that. And there was a gym called Metrics, which was an old bodybuilder gym. So I went in there and I, I joined, and we used to go in there and train just because they had a bunch of equipment. Yes. And it was like it was easy that way because when I got to work, like we were working, we didn't always have time to train. And uh, it was funny having been in that environment to see how fucking wacky the gym people are and then to realize like uh, it's so ancestral in that place because then uh, I realized that like you'd see somebody with a chick and then obviously like a week or two later you'd see like a dude with a different like it was really just kind of incestual and we just it was was awesome to see. I'm I'm so slowly building out my gym. I mean we converted our whole garage and I have a sauna being built right now. We're about two weeks out. Nice. Um, It should be able to hold about four. It's a completely standalone structure. Uh, trying to get a ice bath in there to the point where I can cancel that membership. The only membership I'll keep is uh, just due to all the injuries, uh, which, which you guys probably know having playing sports is, you know, the yoga is the, the Bikram's yoga is the one thing I can't reproduce. So mm-hmm. that's probably the only membership I'll keep, but I do want to go back to the, the oh, coaching and the, ahead. Oh, the infrared sauna uh, with the hot and the cold contrast totally works. No kidding. Yeah. No, I mean like there's like, I always kind of like, I'm so, uh, I've told the story in the podcast, but when I came into the NFL as a rookie, there was a guy named Sean Landetta and Sean uh, basically punted in the NFL for about 25 years. So he was in like his 18th, 19th year. He uh, punted for Bill Parcells when they won the Super Bowls and like, you know, with uh, LT and all that. Mm-hmm. And um, so Landetta, when I first meet him, uh, you know, punter kind of like, I thought he was a coach, you know, I'm 23, this guy's in his forties. And uh, every day he used to come in and he would do hot and cold contrast. He would get in like the hot for like three minutes or it was uh, two minutes in the hot, three minutes in the cold. And he'd just keep going back and forth. So finally I'd see him in there and be like, hey, what are you doing? He's like, well, let me tell you a story. I grew up in New York and we used to go to this uh, like old like athletic club when I was a kid. And these old Jewish guys used to like get in like the the sauna and then they would get this thing called the cold plunge, which was just like a big like uh, ice cold like deal. And they would plunge up and down and they would get back and forth and they swear that it was like the uh, secret to longevity. So, uh, he's like, so I always had it and I, you know, um, 
like it was in my mind, but I didn't really think about it. And then one time um, before, I forgot what game he said, but um, they were all getting ready to go out and they realized that LT wasn't there. And uh, LT liked to party so hard, he had bought a strip club and moved it next door to the Meadowlands for him to go be able to party. That's just smart. Yeah. I mean, he's just a genius, right? So uh, all of a sudden, they're like scrambling because LT's not there. So they send these guys out. They basically drag LT in. They found him in the strip club, passed out before the game. They drag him in, and they started doing hot and cold contrast, like with his head, just dunking him in hot and cold water. And they said on about the 17th time, all of a sudden, his head fucking snaps back. His eyes were fucking lit open. Let's do this. He didn't say anything. He just went in, put on his pants, pulled on his deal, put on his socks, tied his shoes, didn't put any gloves on, nothing, went out there, and that's the day he set the single uh, single game sack record. (laughs) And uh, at that point, he was like, every day since then, I've done contrast. (laughs) Yeah. And I looked at him and I was like, so we're doing contrast every day. So I did it every single day in the NFL. And uh, and then it's funny because we've had people come on the on the podcast and talk about heat and shot, heat shock proteins and cold and this. And you look at all this shit and I'm like, Sean Lynn did it. said old Jewish men did it. And it got LT the fucking single sack record. I'm fucking in. So so that whenever people are like, oh, you know, what do you think of this? I'm like, fucking do it. Get hot, get cold and fucking keep going back until you feel bulletproof and you can go out and set fucking have six sacks. In Based day. off my non-empirical data, it's, <laughs> yeah. it works. Yeah. Uh, well, it, I feel like sometimes the anecdotal stuff is yes. 100% better. I'm looking at cold bass right now. Was it Renew Therapy? If you've seen their, yeah. their pools. And then the, nice. uh, Matt Vincent just sent me. They, uh, he has the plunge one which is cool. Um, and what, what's neat is you hook them up and like, they're always clean. You know, I have a, a ice chest that I fill with water. And during this time of year, I just get my pool out there. I've, I've, so I've got the ice barrel, yeah. but I'm looking to, uh, to, to definitely uh, upgrade. I, I do want to go back to, you know, uh, the coaching and mentoring is I don't have an original thought on leadership. I don't think there's many original thoughts on leadership anymore. It's, it's just an oral history passed down from our coaches and mentors. I've just had, some world-class coaches and mentors, especially in the SEAL teams, uh, Master Chiefs, you know, officer senior to me, and, and most importantly, the peers to my left and right, man. And, and I mean, we are all a product of that. Um, and uh, that's, again, you know, if you lack those type of mentors and, and coaches, you're, you're fighting an uphill battle as a human being to get the best uh, in terms of, uh, of performance. Definitely. What do you think um, if you were to – you know, want to give a takeaway for anybody on like the podcast that's listening in terms of leadership and mentoring. Like, is there anything that like, uh, you know, any foundation that you stand on with that piece? You know, I, the, the, the brand you see on my hat, we're about to launch this along with uh, men's journal on March 15th. Uh, you know, one ADA comes from the root word battalion um, and uh, battalion really why we chose that in the word is I, I believe in tribes. I, I'm fascinated with tribes and Sebastian Younger, if you know that name, wrote a, a yeah, great book, book tribes. tribes. Yeah, no, I, we, I reference it all the time on this podcast. Everyone should read this. Yeah. And I think with, you know, we do look at American society. There's, a, you know, I think a lot is wrong because we no longer have those tribal ties. Well, uh, we were never, uh, I mean, evolutionary. We were never meant to have this many inputs and outputs. I mean, we were small 50, 150 person pieces. And like, you know, they start talking about like, uh, um, the feelings of anxiety and depression going up when you have too many inputs and outputs. And it's funny, Matt Vincent and I had that conversation and he's like, look at social media, it's just output. Don't read any of the comments. Don't listen to anything. Like, don't like, he goes, you can only absorb so much on the inputs. And if you do, it becomes overwhelming. If you just look at it like a beaming out. And that book, I mean, that book was so impactful for me in that way. We just went into the research. Like I said, we're writing this book, The Everyday Warrior. Uh, by the time, based off average social media usage, usage, 
by the time people are 65, they will have spent six years on social media. Six years of time. That's insane. It's depressing. It is depressing. I mean, um, think about how many languages you could speak, how many homes you could build, how many creeks you could clear, you know? That, how, how better relationships you can have, uh, businesses you real can start Real relationships. Yeah, real yeah. genuine well, relationships. Uh, fuck. Let, let me say this. And from his book, Tribe, um, he talked about, you know, the, the Bosnian conflict and how those people were so close yeah. uh, during the... the, the uh, bombardment um, just due to the hardship. Look at look at this country. The last time we were truly unified was in hardship, 9-11. Yeah. Despite your political differences, whether you were red or blue, which I don't care about, 9-11, everyone rallied either around the World Trade Center, uh, Trade Center or on their TVs praying for one another. That's, that's the last time this nation was truly unified. So sometimes you need that hardship to remind people of what's uh, truly important. But... To, to your point about the, the the takeaway I would leave behind is there is no such thing as flawless performance. There is no such thing as attaining 100% balance. This, this thing called life is a journey and it's not a straight path. And if anything, just take everything one step at a time. If you have major goals and what I think a lot of people, again, to social media is a lot of people are selling shortcuts. They're, they're, they're trying to sell the hacks and too many freaking people are going on and buying that supplement that's, you know, would advertise that you're going to lose 15 pounds of fat in 30 days. That does not exist. Yeah. And while we all have goals, the journey is the best damn part. I don't think I've ever, ever been truly satisfied when I achieve a goal. Yeah. I, and I especially you talk about giving people a pat on the back. I, I still have an allergic reaction when people pat me on the back. That's just me. But if I look back at all the steps I took, not all of them were forward. Most of them were back. That's where the true learning took place, man. And once you can understand that, and, and once you can commit to, to putting that hard work, knowing that no goal worth attaining is going to come tomorrow, it's going to come like five years down the line, 10 years down the line. But that's a, that's a life well lived. And uh, I think too many people are, again, looking at social media of that dude who's posting a picture of him on his private jet, which, dude, come on, don't post a picture of you on your private jet. Have some tact in, in class. Uh, uh, dude, and probably you can't afford that. Uh, Maybe you're, you're a guest of somebody else, but uh, it's making people miserable. A buddy of mine uh, posted on social media. He was uh, talking about like, um, hey, I'm going to look at, uh, I'm buying a new car and they want $75,000 over premium for it. Do you guys think I should buy it? And then somebody asked what car, and it was like uh, like the brand new 2002 992 Porsche Turbo S, which is like already a fucking $200,000 car. And I just was like, so wait a minute, you're on social media asking people if you should pay 275000 for a $200,000 car. Look at me. Look at me. Look at uh, me. And I was like, I, I just wanted to hit him up and be like, I was going to text him and be like, yo, man, take that shit down, dude. Even if that's like one uh, a grown man shouldn't have to ask anybody's opinion or more importantly, anybody's permission to do what he wants. Uh, Mr. Perkins, who's my old neighbor here, he just actually uh, turned 92. And yesterday was Cecil Perkins Day in here in Bee Cave. So my old neighbor, he pretty much like uh, this area, he he grew up on this land. He's the guy that built the dam who we got the property from. Uh, he owned this entire area, he and his family, and they've sold it, which allowed them to build Bee Cave. So they, they basically made Cecil Perkins Day. 
But he told me, he goes, you know, the greatest thing about living in Texas is you should never have to ask another man's permission to do anything on your land. And he goes, the day that you do, you don't live in Texas anymore. And so when we wanted to build a building and this, I went over and asked him and he's like, you don't have to ask my permission. Just fucking do it. He's like, you live in Texas now. It's your land. You do what you want. And uh, he, he always has been like, you know, pretty forthright with that. Like uh, men don't have to ask people's permission for shit unless it's your wife and you're going to get in trouble. But that's just being so a good true. husband. So true. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, there's a buddy of mine and I just like, I just fucking just went, I scrolled and I'm like, you know what, man, if, if like, I mean, cause there's so much virtue signaling and there, there's so much like the humble brag with that. Like, Oh, and it's just, it feels so disingenuous to me or, you know, on social media, like people posting what they have. And I'm like, dude, it just, I don't know if, uh, if that's the way I got to gather followers by showing you my shit, like, you know, or somehow like, Oh, look at me. I've been so successful. How do I know that's your fucking gar? Yeah. You know, how do I know that's your private jet? My wife, uh, she gets a little, you know, I, I don't post much of my, my family. I use social media when we also have a team that helps manage it um, for business purposes only. That's it. I, I, I don't like to show too much of my life because you could target, going back to my CL days, you could target a lot of people yeah. by what they, they show you. I don't want to be an easy target. As Tim, Tim Kennedy says always, you know, be hard to kill. Yeah. Um, but I, I'm always cautious to, to expose too much of our personal life within our family, especially when we have kids. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, well, they, um, I'm always amazed by people posting like their children so willingly on their social media. I mean, I, there's a lot of, uh, to quote my dad, there's a lot of fucking perverts. And I know, cause uh, I've, um, you know, my dad was a criminal defense attorney for 55 yes, years. Yes. He's like, there's a lot of fucking bad people in this world. And like, don't put your kids on that thing. And uh, I see it all the time where I'm like, I just kind of cringe. And um, yeah, it's a, no, it's a, it's an interesting thing. Like we've uh, a certain layer of trust is evolved with people that I don't think exists. And I think it's a facade. It's, it, it's, it's a level of comfort that we shouldn't have. So you reverse the old Reagan quote, it's now verify, and then I'll trust you. Um, the trust but verify, is, that's burned me too many times. And people all put up a good good face. Well, uh, You've got to go to, I think, for me personally, it's I've got to verify. Well, uh, we talk about uh, when you push out to the fringe, mm-hmm. it's only one person. So, like, if I meet somebody on the fringe or, like, somebody there and they don't, uh, like, it's not one phone call. And I'm sure, like, you know, we're talking and it's like, oh, do you know? Yeah. I can make a phone call. Yeah, I've I've, I've eaten dinner at his house. Like, these are good friends of mine. And, like, when you realize, when you push out, you know, and it's like, oh, if you know so-and-so or if uh, you call somebody and that that guy's a fucking piece of shit, you're like, I I like you. It's kind of like the age-old, like, uh, uh, I'm nervous of people that uh, don't like dogs, but I'm totally convinced when the dog doesn't like them, something's wrong with that person. You couldn't agree more. You know, it, dogs, dogs are a great judge uh, of character. Yeah. Great judge. Yeah. yeah. So anything else? Well, dude, that was awesome, man. Thanks for, uh, for coming on. And, uh, more importantly, just hanging out and feel like we made another, another good friend, another ally, whichever I meet people. I'm like, how, how have we not been friends before? Well, dude, again, thanks for having me on guys. And, uh, yeah, we're going to have to get that working out. And I want to see, uh, the pain huh? you guys drive home. Well, we like to bang heavy weights and, uh, do some short, hard conditioning and then call it a day. So, but uh, yeah, man, thanks for tuning in, Power Athlete Radio. Great train, and I'm right on track. I'm smoking. Now it's time for you to empower your performance. You can find Mike Sorrell on Instagram at mr.sorrell. That's S A R R A I L L E. Until next time, bye.